1 Corinthians 7, the first seven verses. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Hannah and I love a good detective drama. And uh, the ones that we like the most are the ones that are two, three, or more episodes long. So that you really get drawn into the plot and you really get to know the characters. The downside is that we very rarely get to watch two back-to-back which means by the time we hit play on episode two, we've forgotten most of who the characters are and what's going on in the story. And it takes us about five or ten minutes to work out what on earth is happening. Now, you might have had a similar thought when you read 1 Corinthians 7, because for various reasons, it has been a long time since we have been in this book. Some of those reasons were planned, some of them were unplanned, but it has been, well, we haven't been successively in this book since November of last year. That's a long time. So you probably had one of those what's going on moments when you read these first seven verses. So before we get into chapter seven, and Lord willing now for the foreseeable future, we will be back in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's do a quick previously in 1 Corinthians. So if you turn back to chapter 1. Let's just very quickly set the scene for this book so that we don't take these verses out of context. Paul is writing to a divided church. Sounds like these people could divide over pretty much anything. Chapter 1, they had their favorite leaders. Towards the end of that chapter and into chapter 2, they were divided over the issue of wisdom. They wanted to see their idea of worldly wisdom lived out in Paul and in Christianity. So they wanted to see power on display. And Paul has to show them how wrong that view is. In fact, that worldly view had left them being spiritually immature. So in chapter 3, Paul has to challenge them about that. He has to tell them that you you need to be biblical, you need to be humble, because God has given you all that you need. The foundation of the apostles is all that the church, for the rest of time until Jesus returns, needs to worship him. So you need to stop boasting about the wrong things. You need to treasure true treasure. That's not where they are when Paul wrote this. In fact, chapter 4, they despised Paul's authority. They totally dismissed his ministry. The fact that he could rightly be described as a father in the faith them didn't make any difference whatsoever because they were arrogant. And that's a big problem. Because arrogance never leads to godliness. 
And what you see over the course of the next few chapters is how that unravels. Chapter 5, in their worldliness, their arrogance, they've allowed a case of incest to enfold in the church without any challenge, any discipline. Chapter 6, Paul rebukes them because they've got these disputes as believers. And the way that they want to try and fix it is by taking their spiritual dispute into a non-Christian law court. And then, end of chapter 6, when we were last in the book together... All of this worldliness, all of this arrogance has resulted in some of them visiting prostitutes and thinking that's okay because body and soul are separate, so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Corinth is a mess. (laughs) And he hasn't even started to address any of the issues that they wrote to him about yet. Chapters 1 to 6 are Paul's instruction under God through the Spirit towards all of the mess that he sees in the church. And it's only when you get to chapter 7 that we start a new section. Look at the beginning of chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, where he's going to pick up all of the issues that they were fighting on as well, and they wanted Paul to help them with. Now, that phrase that we've got translated, now for, it appears, I think it's about seven or eight times throughout the rest of the letter from chapter 7 and verse 1, and there are some very specific things at the very end of the book about what to do with collections and what to do with the polis. But if you look at all of the other now fours, I think you can fairly group them into three big categories. So chapter 7, Paul is going to talk about an issue they wrote about to do with marriage and celibacy. Chapters 8 to 11, he's going to look at issues of idolatry. They were fighting over that. Chapters 12 to 14, he's going to speak to them about spiritual gifts. They're some of the big things. There's a few other details as well. But they're the big things that this church said, we don't know what we're supposed to do. So can you tell us what to do about, now for the next four weeks, Lord willing, we are going to be thinking about marriage, singleness, and divorce. And Paul has got a really clear goal in mind. Because this church family are looking at all of those situations through worldly glasses. All of the way that they think about those different seasons of life is shaped by a selfish and a sinful worldview. And what Paul is going to do throughout the whole of this chapter is he is going to show us what a godly view of those seasons of life looks like so that we can bring God glory in them, and we can bless others. Which means, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about really specific issues. So tonight's marriage. Lord willing, next week is singleness, and on we go. And it would be very tempting to think, well, I'm single, so tonight's not for me. I'm married, so next week's not for me. I may may not even come. Please don't be tempted to think like that. Because God has given the whole of this letter to the whole of the church. And different members of our body as a church family are in different situations. So some are married and some are single. But all of us are in this church family together. And therefore, 
we are committed to caring for and gently challenging where necessary and lovingly encouraging all the time one another. And it doesn't take a married person to see that a brother or sister who's married is being sinful or selfish in the way that they're relating to their spouse. It doesn't take a single person to think, I need to be mindful of how difficult it might be for my single friends to be living alone at this moment or to be prayerfully thinking about how I can encourage them to use their time and all of their gifts to serve God faithfully. That We're not supposed to be doing the Christian life on our own. On our own, we miss blind spots of sin. On our own, we miss the encouragements of growth in the Christian life. Spending some time with somebody at the moment, and I've been intentionally trying to help him see how God is at work in his life, but it's just hard for him to see it, as it is for any of us. Because often growth is slow, often we can't see it in our own life, and we need the encouragement of somebody else to see, brother, sister, do you see how the Lord is at work in your life? How he's changing your character, how he's changing the way that you live. That is the work of the Spirit Be encouraged. Now, the whole of 1 Corinthians is written in that kind of view. The letter is not written so that every single chapter speaks personally to your situation where you are. But that's not how any of us should be thinking about the Christian life anyway. The Christian life is lived as a church family. So we need to read the whole of what 1 Corinthians says because there will be different members in our church in those different seasons. And it is collectively our privilege and joy to walk with one another all the way to glory. All of 1 Corinthians is what we need. So the first thing we need to see is that we mustn't try to reinvent God's plan. We mustn't try to reinvent God's plan. That's the root problem that some of the Corinthians were struggling with. Some of them thought, verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you look at what he goes on to describe, Paul is specifically talking about husbands and wives here. So what is going on is there are some people in the church family who are saying it's a good thing for a husband and wife not to have sex together. Now, we don't know why they thought that. Maybe there was a, a hangover of their, their Greek surroundings, their Greek culture, which elevated the soul and the spirit and denigrated the body. So, soul good, body bad. And maybe as some of those people came into the church and were converted, they still had the same kind of thought so as far as they were concerned, anything to do with the Christian life and the spirit, that's a good thing, we should do that. Anything to do with the body, even something as lovely as sex within marriage, that's bodily, so that's a bad thing. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe it's because they were wrestling with what we call over-realized eschatology. Meaning, eschatology is the last things. Over-realized means you're assuming too much of that theology too soon. So here's the thought process. We think Jesus is coming back tonight, 
So let's just do the things that are absolutely essential until Jesus comes back. Overrealized eschatology, last things. Maybe that was in their mind. We, we don't know. But what we do know is they believed this. <laughs> and this, in chapter 7, couldn't be any more different than chapter 6. So some in the church, chapter 6, thought that they could have sex with other people who they weren't married to. And then some people, chapter 7, thought it best not even to have sex with the husband or wife you're married to. That is how differently and how broadly sin can affect the same church. But what's at the root of their thinking? It is a rejection of God's good plan. What do most of us, I hope, know about the beginning of all things in Genesis? God made Adam, that first man, and then looking at Adam said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. And what happens? God beautifully then creates Eve, and then Adam and Eve become one flesh, and it's only then that God says, all of creation is very good. That is God's good plan for a husband and wife to enjoy that intimacy within the marriage relationship. And before you go any further into the detail of what he's describing about married life, first one is a reminder that we must never try to reinvent God's plan. Because we're all tempted to do that. We've all been tempted to do it since Satan managed to tempt Eve with exactly the same lie. We all want to think that we know better than God. I wouldn't tell anybody else that's what we're thinking when we're trying to do it, but that's the temptation that is going through our heads. And the devil knows it's a winner. It's already won the battle with Eve, and he has been lying with that lie for the thousands of years to today. Don't listen. Matthew helpfully reminded us this morning, didn't he, that that God's plan may lead us into difficult places. We were reminded this morning that the Lord's people, they were led into the desert. It wasn't that they fell out of God's plan and suddenly stepped into a place they shouldn't have gone. He took them there. Christian living can be hard. But of all the many things we remember at Easter, as you look to the cross and gaze upon the love of God for sinful and lost people like us, we cannot doubt the goodness of God. We might not be sure how his plans are unfolding for us in any particular moment, but we can't doubt his love and his goodness. And his plans are our best, which means we don't try to reinvent them. Secondly, every married couple is called to cherish God's gift of sex in marriage. To cherish God's gift of sex in marriage. Do you, do you remember the context, okay, that's going on in Corinth? So, verse 2, sexual immorality is occurring, is what Paul says, meaning it's rampant everywhere. It's rampant throughout the city. It's crept into the church. This problem is massive, and it's everywhere. And you might be thinking, I know what Paul's going to say here. He's going to say to everybody, look, I know you might be married, but because this is such a big problem, let's all just stop even thinking about it, because that will help. That's not God's solution. 
To those who are married, Paul says, verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The underlying principle here is sex isn't sinful, it's a gift. To be cherished in the gift of marriage, sex isn't sinful, it's a gift. And we need to be really clear about that as Christians. When I was growing up, sex was very, very rarely, if at all, mentioned in church. And as a preacher, I can see lots of good reasons for why that might have been the case. You want to be really careful about what young ears hear. You need to speak so carefully when people aren't married, about some of the intimacies and the the issues that are involved. And all of those things are right concerns. The problem is, in our world today, sex is everywhere. When I was growing up, there was a whole curriculum of material that you weren't introduced to until you came into secondary school. Now a load of our children are picking up that amount of detail and more, not only from primary school curriculums, but from their friends in school, and from all of the discussion with all of their friends in the playground. And we as Christians need to engage wisely in that. Now, how we engage is going to be different. And it's going to depend on your age and your stage and on the personality of your child. So we still need to be appropriate to age and circumstance. I'm not saying because the world's talking about it, we just need everybody to be talking about the same level. That's not wise. Similarly, we need to be really, really clear about there are times when, because of a non-Christian worldview that is pushed in our schools, there may be times when you do need to remove your children from classes. And there are going to be bucket loads of social media feeds and channels and everything else that we should be preventing our children from even looking at. But on top of all of those things that require enormous wisdom for parents. And if you're not in that situation as a parent yet, would you pray for all of us who are? On top of all of that, we can't default as Christians to just not talking about sex at all. Because what it will mean is, both our young people and our adults who are growing in the church and the world that is watching outside will assume that, well, I've got to fill in the blank because the church isn't saying anything. So what does the church think? Well, maybe that Christians are embarrassed by sex. Maybe that Christians shouldn't really enjoy sex, just see it as a means to an end, but don't dwell on it and don't talk about it. Underlying this whole passage is a very simple but very important principle. Sex is God's good gift to a husband and a wife in marriage. It is to be a beautiful thing, and we mustn't see it as anything different in that context. Now, I hope all of that's familiar ground. What might be less familiar is what Paul then says. Sex within marriage, sex isn't optional. It's a dutiful, sorry, a delightful duty. 
It is a delightful duty. Now, it takes some careful unpacking, so let's set the context for verse 3. Firstly, we need to remember that this isn't the only thing that Paul has to say about the issue of sex. We have been, as a church family, in Ephesians 5, recently in our home groups. It's the same person who wrote that beautiful description about all of the things that marriage and sex and intimacy are pointing towards. They are showing us the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his bride. It is a picture showing us of all of the great things that the Lord Jesus has done for us at the cross. So don't think in talking, verse 3, about a marital duty, that Paul is some kind of cold, heartless bloke who's just driven by duty. That's not. It's not who he is. The Bible says more for us about this subject than what we read here. But right here in Corinth, he's responding to a very specific problem. There were some husbands and wives in the church who thought that it was God's plan for them not to have sex as a couple. And that's a problem. It's a problem because the gift of marriage is a gift for so many things, one of which is to build the bond between a couple, and another is to protect them from temptation outside of the marriage. And we'll get to all of that in a minute. But with that in mind, Paul says, verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So without ignoring, denying Ephesians 5 and the glory and the majesty and the importance of marriage and without undermining the absolute importance of love and romance... Paul is saying, don't forget that when you enter into the marriage covenant, you enter into a marital duty. Now, that isn't the kind of language that we use today. In fact, behind this language in the Greek is that idea of a legal debt, which is even stranger to us. The idea that when you enter into that contract, that covenant in the marriage, you're promising to pay to one another all sorts of, of obligations and duties, one of which is the intimacy that you enjoy within marriage. Now, sadly, we all know that that delightful duty can be horribly abused. And sometimes even Christians will read a passage like this And they will read the section of the text they want and ignore the section they don't want and assume that what Paul is saying is, well, you can just demand to have sex whenever and however you like because that's what you signed up to when you got married. That is absolutely not what Paul is saying. That kind of sinful an abusive way of thinking that can lead to physical and emotional and spiritual abuse, that is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here. And you see that when you look at the mutuality of what he is describing, the protection that God has built into marriage as he's designed it. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul is showing us, thirdly, that sex isn't selfish or abusive, but sacrificial and loving. 
Sex isn't selfish or abusive. It's sacrificial loving. In fact, if you look back at verse 2, Paul's been shaping the whole of this argument in completely mutual ways. All the way through from verse 2 down to verse 4. Everything that he says to husbands about obligation and duty and authority, he says to wives in exactly the same way. There's no seniority here. There's no one person's the head over the other. There's the, the vocabulary, the grammar, it is all exactly the same. Husband and wife don't stand over one another here. They're both yielding authority over their bodies to the other. Now, that must have hit the Corinthians really hard because this church family is a big family of rights. My rights. We've seen some of that already. Saw it at the beginning of chapter 6 when they were fighting over their rights and even went off into the civil courts to get it sorted. Chapter 6, verse 12. One of their sayings was, I have the right to do anything. By the time you get to chapter 9, Paul's going to have to spend an entire chapter establishing his authority as an apostle because they're insisting on their rights and refusing to listen to his authority. And what Paul's going to do here in verse 4 is going to pick up on that theme of rights. I, 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 I can hardly imagine a topic more relevant than this. Our culture in the West is equally obsessed with our rights. It's all about me and what I'm entitled to and what I can enforce and what I have the right to. Well, what does Paul say to all of that? He picks up this obsession with with rights and shows us how God intended rights and authority to work husband to wife in that most intimate relationship. They are not, not the basis for controlling one another or for exercising any form of of unfair and unkind demand. The exact opposite should be true. In Christian marriage, the husband and wife, their rights are passed over to the other such that they don't have authority over their own bodies. They've yielded it. They've gifted it to their husband or to their wife. And that should change everything. I haven't got time to think about everything this evening. Here are two specifics. Firstly, it should change the way husbands and wives care for their own bodies. Because we're no longer just caring for our own body for ourselves. We've yielded the authority over our body to our spouse. I wonder for those of you who are married, whether you can remember back to the days when you were dating and and engaged. And whether you can remember that there were weeks or months or maybe even a number of years when you were really careful about what you ate and how much exercise you did and what clothes you wore and even what perfume you wore. Some of you are smiling. I'm not going to ask whether that's because you remember those days fondly or you never did any of that kind of stuff. But by God's grace, you're still married, so praise God for that. But there's a way of thinking that If I can put it bluntly, once you've got the guy or girl, it doesn't really matter. That's not what Paul says. When you are married to one another, you yield authority of your body to the other and are still committed 
in one sense, even more so, because now there's that promise of being together for the rest of your life. You're committed to being a loving person, and even to the extent that age and health allow, and those things are massive variables that change significantly, that to the extent that they allow, Christians should be careful of their body in order to be a blessing to their husband or wife. Second thing it should do is it turns the way our world thinks about sex on its head. Well, no, that's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> the world has turned everything on its head. The Bible turns things back on its feet. Sex isn't about getting what I want or insisting on my rights. In the way that God designed intimacy in a marriage, it is to be sacrificial and giving for the good of your husband and wife. The whole purpose of marriage in this context is to bring and give pleasure rather than to be demanding and insistent. It is intended. We talk as a church, don't we, all the time about the gospel changing every sphere of our life. Well, here's how the gospel changes the way we behave in bed. The sinful, selfish nature is to die. And the way we love is out of a sacrificial, others-focused love. That puts them first. Which we can't possibly do on our own. That is the gospel at work. But with God's grace, every marriage can be restored in this way. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I've been married five minutes or 50 years. And there's stuff here that I know I haven't done. Haven't lived out faithfully. I haven't shown consistently towards my husband or wife. Don't leave thinking, my marriage is stuck in a rut. I wish I'd done things differently. Leave thinking, I'm going to put the gospel into action in my marriage. In the same way that we would in any other sphere. I'm going to confess my sin to God and my spouse, and repent and turn away from whatever it was that I was doing or not doing, and I'm going to come to the God who has promised to forgive me for everything, including this, knowing that he delights to forgive and give changing power to all who call out to him. Put the gospel into action even here. Thirdly and finally, Paul says, we need to beware of Satan's schemes. Beware of Satan's schemes. He's established this big principle of husbands and wives enjoying sex regularly. Verse 6, he concedes an exception and he explains it in verse 5. If both parties consent, that's proviso number one. If they don't, it's not an option. If they both consent and it's just for a specific time, that's proviso number two, then there may be times to stop having sex. But Paul's really clear about the purposes that he has in mind. There's, a, there's two, if you look at the text, there's two so that's. They're the two purpose clauses. And he tells us a so that, a reason to stop, and a so that, a reason to resume. So couples can agree together for a time not have sex so that they can devote themselves to prayer. That's the reason to stop for a season. 
And then, end of verse 5, that season mustn't go on for too long. There's a reason to resume, which is, Satan is prowling to tempt us, and we lack the self-control to resist. So let's be really clear what Paul is saying before we look at what Paul isn't saying. Prayer is important enough to pause our sex lives. But sin is powerful enough that the pause must be short. That's what he's saying here in verse 5. Both things are true. So if you go back to your Old Testament, you will see that there are various points in Israel's history where something so significant was unfolding that the Jews were called to abstain from a whole load of stuff, including from having sex, because what mattered most is what was going on here. And Paul's saying the same principle applies in the New Covenant era, but it's different. Because now what we're saying is, in all of the busyness of life, prayer often gets squeezed, sometimes to nothing. And sometimes the matter that needs to be prayed about is so important that you would even choose together for a time to fast, in that sense, from sex in order to make that time to pray. And as long as those provisors are in place, that is a good thing to do. But sin is powerful enough that the pause should be brief. That's what he's saying in verse 2. Sexual immorality is everywhere. Verse 5, the devil is prowling like a lion seeking to tempt us. And part of God's gift to protect couples is the delightful duty of regular sex in your marriage. So if you need for a season to abstain from that in order to focus on prayer, make sure it doesn't last for long because otherwise the devil will pounce. The devil is desperate to destroy Christian marriages. I hope that's not a surprise to you, but maybe we don't say it enough. The devil is desperate to destroy Christian marriages for all sorts of reasons. He, he wants to destroy individual Christians within those marriages. He wants to destroy the reputation of Christians within the local community. But he particularly wants to destroy anything that is pointing us towards all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for his people as is pictured in marriage. The devil is desperate to destroy Christian marriages. And that's why God's gift of sex within marriage is such a precious protection for couples in it. That's what Paul is saying. Now what's Paul not saying? I want to think carefully about two things as we close. Paul is not saying that focused times of prayer are the only biblical grounds for not having sex. Where did we start with? We reminded ourselves that this passage isn't the only thing that Paul has to say about marriage. You've got Ephesians 5 and other passages that show us the glory and the breadth and the depth of all of the things that are going on in marriage. He's responding to a specific thing here. The same is true for the reasons why a Christian couple may not have sex on any particular occasion. Because there are other passages in the scriptures that teach us principles like love and self-sacrifice. Which means there are going to be times of ill health and exhaustion. 
there are going to be times of post-op recovery and, and the side effects of medication. There are going to be times of mental health struggles and of physical disabilities and all of those circumstances and many more require love and sacrifice within a marriage. I think you could fairly tie them up in Paul's description in verse 4 of husbands and wives yielding authority over their bodies to the other. But there mustn't be anything manipulative in the way that we withhold sex from our spouse. Warren Wiersbe has a lovely way of putting this. Sexual love is a beautiful tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. Every married couple needs to hear that because every married couple is made up of two sinners who are still wrestling with all of those difficulties that all of us have within any relationship until the Lord calls us to glory and we are finally free from our sin. In your marriage, there will be times of disagreement, times when you don't see eye to eye on something and it is all too easy for those disagreements to bubble up to a place where intimacy that should be a gift is weaponized in order to harm. And at that point, we have stopped showing the gospel in the way that we enjoy God's gift within marriage. That's the first thing. The second thing that Paul's not saying is that a husband or wife is responsible for their spouse's sin. Talking about sex is really hard. (laughs) It's really hard for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons that it's hard is that very few, if any of us, think we're getting it right all the time. We know ourselves too well. Even in the most loving of marriages, we can feel like we're not doing the best job that we possibly could in this area. And when you feel like that, and you read passages like this, it can be tempting to think, The reason my husband or wife started looking at something online or started a relationship with somebody else is because our sex life wasn't good enough. Because I wasn't good enough. That's not, that's not what Paul is writing about here. It's not the situation he's addressing. Come back to verse 3. Intimacy, he says, it's part of our marital duty. But so too are all of the promises that husband and wife make together when they get married. Do you remember what he promised? Will you have this man or woman to be your husband or wife? Will you love, comfort, honor, and keep them in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others... Be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. That's the promise we make. It's the joyful promise, the solemn but joyful promise that we make. Not that we will only be faithful if when we get into marriage, the sex life meets certain criteria. That we'll always be faithful as long as we both shall live. 
I know it's been a while since we've been in the book of Corinthians. Sometimes when you read sections in Corinthians, you think, wow, that church could not be more different than our situation today. Other times you read it and you're reminded that the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. These are the kinds of issues that as a church we need to hear and be shaped by such that our marriages would be beacons of the gospel to a world where marriages are falling apart. Abuse and adultery are everywhere. May God protect and bless our marriages such that they would be a picture of his goodness and grace, not only to individual couples, but to the bride of Christ when he draws that bride to his glorious bridegroom at the end of time. They're big things for us to think about. Before we pray, I wonder if we could just take just a couple of minutes to pray personally in the quiet of your heart. Again, if you're not single, would you pray for some specific Christian friends that you know, and even non-Christian friends, where you know these kinds of things are a real burden? If you're a married husband or wife this evening, think about how these privileges need to be lived out afresh in your marriage. Let's take just a few minutes to pray and quiet. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminders we've already heard in our service of the grace of the gospel. Every head bowed knows something of the brokenness of sin, either in friendships that we're aware of or in our own marriages. Thank you that you care for us so deeply that you have given us your word to speak into all of the variety of struggles that we wrestle with. Please, would your spirit be at work in our hearts to soften us, to humble us. Please, would he correct and teach us so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. We want our marriages to be Places in which our children, our church family, our neighbors and colleagues see the beauty of the gospel lived out in every different part of that relationship. Cannot possibly do that in our own strength. And yet we come to the God who knew in eternity past all of the ways in which we would stumble and fall and promises to give us grace for today and tomorrow. So please, Father, would you send your spirit to be at work in our lives such that we would become more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen.